All right. Hey, good morning, everybody. Go ahead and grab a seat. Introverts, you are excused from turning greeting. Extroverts, quiet down. All right. Welcome, everybody. Super glad you're here. My name is Matt. I'm a pastor here and just pumped uh, for you to be here today. If you are uh, somebody who is new with us last weekend, we just want to say welcome back. We're excited for you to be here. We are wrapping up our teaching series through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, it has been a three and a half year journey. Woo! All right, so last message on Luke. Actually, I think we have a message in Luke in, in the next series, so we just can't get away from it. But uh, hey, if you have a Bible, grab it and open it up to Luke chapter 24, verse 36. If you don't have a Bible, we have them in the pew in front of you. We'll also have it up on the screen as well. Uh, it has been, as I said, three and a half years since Dave and I started uh, Luke, and we've broken it up into like nine or ten parts, and we've squeezed in a whole nother 15 teaching series in the midst of that. Um, a lot has happened in that time. A lot's happened for us as a church. We've grown, we've matured, we've uh, hopefully been challenged by the scriptures, and uh, it's been awesome to just watch us uh, and watch you uh, live out the gospel together in community over those years. Uh, a lot's happened in our world. Three and a half years ago, think about what, what were you doing? You were probably addictively crushing candy because that was popular. Uh, then Pokemon Go happened last summer. Anyway, the more important thing is that in the last three and a half years, we have received not one but two Star Wars franchise films. And so that has been pretty cool. Right? So the geeks are happy and said amen. And uh, all, um, a lot has happened in our world. And uh, what is, strikes me is that no matter what has been going on, the very profound, universally uh, applicable message of the Gospel of Luke has seemed to transcend circumstance and connect to us and to our world wherever um, we are and whatever has been happening uh, as God uses the scriptures to draw us into his story and to good news us. And so as we hit the final chapter of Luke, uh, I want to just spend a, a couple of minutes recapping it all. I know, I know you all remember everything we've said for the last three and a half years about Luke, but I'm going to remind you anyway. Uh, I'm just kidding. All right. Um, uh, all right, so hey, let's do this. Let me. I know Lauren was like, "Don't say that. That's not funny." My wife was like, "Don't say that." I love that you think that that's funny, and I was like, "I'm going to say it anyway." <laughs> Teaches me to ignore my wife. All right, so uh, as we close this, I want to just kind of remind you how Luke works as a whole book. Uh, and so Luke is part one of a two-part unified narrative, a single literary work. So it is Luke-Acts uh, that f- form volume one and volume two of Luke's work. Uh, Luke, the author, is uh, the traveling companion, friend, and co-worker with Paul the Apostle. And he tells us why he has written this book. He tells us how and he tells us why. He tells us how. He says that he collected the eyewitness accounts. He collected the eyewitness tradition and testimony and he set out to write an orderly account about the things that have been fulfilled among us. And that word fulfilled tells us why he wrote it. He wants to make a very clear statement that Jesus, uh, the story of Jesus, fulfills, completes the story of God and Israel, and therefore God and the whole world. 
And he arranges his book pretty interestingly. It's in a really simple layout. He has a, a short introduction of two chapters, and then he gets into the introductory section of Jesus and his mission, chapters 3 through 9. And then the second half of 9 through 19 is what we call the journey section, or Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem, where he teaches along the way throughout the area of Samaria. And then the last part involves Jesus in Jerusalem, chapters 19 through 24. And so he kind of lays it out geographically. Galilee, Journey, Jerusalem. And that's how he builds the story. In chapters 1 through 2, Luke shows us, he starts the gospel off with an old Jewish couple that can't have a kid. This sounds familiar to all the other Old Testament stories where there's an old Jewish couple that can't have a kid. It tells us God's about to do something. And sure enough, they have this kid, and it's John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, who will be a forerunner, this prophet who will prepare the people to receive him as king. And it tells us the story in the birth of Jesus as well. And during this section, we have these couples just erupting with poetic songs describing God's faithfulness to fulfill his promises. And then Jesus moves into the region uh, of Galilee. After he's baptized by John, the Spirit descends on Jesus, it says, like a dove, the heavens are opened, and God says, this is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. And he faces temptation in the wilderness on our behalf, standing firm, and then heads into his hometown, Nazareth, in the region of Galilee, and he opens his public ministry by unrolling the scroll of Isaiah, and he turns to Isaiah 61, or scrolls to Isaiah 61, and he reads it and says that this is fulfilled. And there's these very important words that he drops. He says that he has come to proclaim freedom to the captives and good news to the poor. And that idea of freedom is this liberation, this uh, literally a jubilee, the ancient Jewish practice where land was returned to its owners, debts were canceled, and slaves were set free. And he says that this work of liberation is happening and it's good news for the poor. Not just a word for people without a lot of money, but people who are on the fringes, people who are, have very low social status, outsiders. And in those chapters, we see what that good news what that kingdom of God looks like for those people as they're healed and as they're forgiven and as they are made whole physically, socially, and spiritually. And then Jesus uh, goes on to tell his disciples that he's going to be crucified or that he will be killed, rejected, and raised again. And, uh, and then we see this very... Uh, interesting center section where Jesus journeys towards Jerusalem. It's this very important theme where Luke is describing what it's like to follow Jesus. He compares it to a journey where he says, following Jesus is something you do. It's something you do as you learn along life's path. It's a very important theme for Luke. And so Jesus in this section is embracing all kinds of outsiders just as he preached in Luke chapter 4. And he is teaching all that it means to be his disciple and what it looks like to walk life's path after him. And then Jesus enters Jerusalem, enters debates with the religious leaders, and is uh, rejected, condemned, and crucified. Which brings us then to the resurrection stories. Where last week we saw that Jesus is alive, that the tomb is empty, and there's these two dazzling angels. I believe Dave called, called them swagger angels a couple of years ago, right? So swagger angels are there, shining and telling the, the women, hey, Jesus is not here. He uh, don't look for the living among the dead, right? And so 
in the aftermath of the resurrection, we catch up with these two disciples, Clopas and his companion, maybe his wife, we think. And on their road from Jerusalem to Emmaus, we hear of their dismay. Jesus appears on the road, just like simply, boom, here I am, like appears on the road. And he's like, what are you guys talking about? And they say, like, are you nuts? Are you, did, are you the only person who missed all that just happened in Jerusalem? And, and, uh, and so he says, like, okay, like, describe it to me. And they tell how sad they are and how they're dismayed and how they had hoped Jesus was the Messiah who would redeem Israel. And in the midst of this, they fail to see that it's actually Jesus walking with them until at the table that night, he breaks bread with them. And in the breaking of the bread, just like the Passover meal in chapter 22, their eyes are open. They see Jesus. They recognize him and he vanishes from their sight. We have a whole seven week series called Emmaus about that story. If you want to check it out, it's from the fall. And the point of this resurrection story of Jesus is this, that when Jesus' disciples, when they impose their agenda, when they impose their view of reality on Jesus, he remains invisible. And yet, when and only when we submit ourselves to his upside-down kingdom, epitomized by the cross, that we can truly see and experience Jesus. And that brings us to today's concluding scene. Would you pray with me now that we've summed up the entire Gospel of Luke in five minutes? Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this account of Jesus that you authored through Luke, that you used his mind to craft this story that puts a a spotlight on your unique glory. We pray, Spirit, that you would come and open our hearts to hear and respond. And we pray that you would shape us as your church in the world to live in light of what you are proclaiming to us through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to show you three things today that this conclusion of Luke shows us. Shows us that Jesus is real, that he's central, and that he's also a sender. Uh, Let's look at the first bit. Verse 36. Check this out with me. Luke chapter 24, verse 36. While they were still talking about this, that is, the fact that Jesus is alive, right? Like everybody's just like, we saw Jesus and then he disappeared at the table. You'd be talking about it too. And so, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Shalom. And they were startled and frightened, thinking that they saw a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I, myself. Touch and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were all, well, they all still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. Now, I'd love to spend two hours on these verses, but I want you to come back next week, so I won't. Uh, this is amazing, right? They're standing there, they're talking, they're kind of life is like kind of interrupted by this news, but it seems incredible to them. It doesn't seem like something that makes sense. And he just, poof, appears and says, Shalom, right? Shalom. Uh, all the disciples are freaked out. They're like utterly frightened. They think they are seeing a ghost, but Jesus 
argues with them, right? Shalom, let me argue with you, right? Like that's kind of what's going on here. It's like, why are you troubled? Why are you doubting? Don't you know it's me? Look at my hands, look at my feet, touch and see. There's this invitation, but also this debate, right? He says a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones. Your categories are off. I love this scene, right? Jesus just appears, shalom, and then immediately starts arguing with them, right? Uh, you think you're, you think I'm a ghost? Touch me. I'm not a ghost. By the way, do you have any food? Right? I love that. I love Jesus here. It's like he just shows up and starts mooching like a college student, right, from his disciples. He's like, you wouldn't believe the last three days I've had. I'm starving. Right? I love it. And, and of course, they're like, we have some broiled fish. I can only imagine Jesus' response like, okay, thanks, guys. I kind of wanted huevos rancheros, but I guess this will do, right? Uh, I love it. So why is Luke telling us all this? What does he want to say? I, I think he wants you to know something very important. He, remember his introduction. Luke says, uh, I've set out an orderly account about all that's been fulfilled among us. That This is the eyewitness testimony. The eyewitnesses to the resurrection said things happened this way. He's telling us that Jesus is real. Luke's saying, look, Jesus is real. The resurrection happened, that Jesus has a real, physical, alive again body, and he's not a mere figment of the imagination. This is not a result from trauma. They're not having a group hallucination that all agrees. Uh, No, he's not just existentially alive in their hearts. He's physically alive in their living room. That's what Luke is saying. How do we know this? What's so important for us to know, uh, especially because we're modern people, and modern people, you know, we know that dead people stay dead people, uh, is, is this, that not one single disciple, not one disciple ever expected Jesus to rise from the dead. No one was thinking, oh, right, he talked to us about this. They were all like, no, uh -uh, mm uh-uh, not him, no way, no way. Uh, it was just as impossible to their worldview, their worldview as first century Jews, as it is to our worldview as 21st century modern secular folk to think that Jesus would have risen from the dead. We think it's impossible because, you know, supernatural things are automatically ruled out to the secular mind. They thought it was impossible, not because they didn't believe in supernatural things. They thought it was impossible because resurrection wasn't supposed to happen until the end of time. See, there was one reference in the entire Jewish scriptures, one reference in all of Judaism to which first century Jews would have thought about resurrection. There was one reference, and it's about the resurrection of all the righteous at the end of history, and it's in Daniel chapter 12. It's the only reference. And so uh, it was simply impossible to their minds that there would be a resurrection of one person in the middle of history. You see what I'm saying? Absolutely nonsense to them. None of them believe it. They simply couldn't have fabricated this event because it was the furthest thing from their minds, which raises the legitimacy to the claim that he was actually alive. This is what Dave talked about last week. Now, Luke is telling us that the only reasonable explanation for the existence and growth of the early church is simply that Jesus actually rose from the dead. N.T. Wright, he's my go-to New Testament scholar and historian for all things first century Judaism, says this. The early Christians did not invent the empty tomb or sightings of the risen Jesus to explain a faith they already had. 
They develop the faith because of those occurrences. You see, he says, given all the evidence, the only real historically valid explanation for the empty tomb and for the appearances of Jesus to both his followers and to his opposers is that he actually rose bodily. All right, so so what? So what that Jesus is real? Why am I saying this? Because if Jesus is real, if the resurrection actually happened, then, none of, then it's not just an idea, it's not just a philosophy, it's not just a way for people who are hurting to cope with their very difficult world. You see, if it happened, then it is the hinge of all human history. And if it's the hinge of all human history, then it's the hinge of your entire life. What I'm saying is if this actually happened, it raises the stakes on your response to it. How you respond to it matters if it actually happened. Now, there are always in a room like this a couple different kinds of people with a couple different kinds of questions. There's first of all the person here who's just flat out skeptical. I don't blame you. That's okay. Uh, and, and so you're here and you're skeptical about the whole Jesus thing. What I want to say to you is this. You don't have to ditch reason in order to step out in faith. This is not faith in spite of reason. It's reasonable faith based on evidence, okay? Which means at some point, you have to deal with the fact that your life is built on some sort of faith assumption. Right now, maybe it's on a secular faith assumption that there is no miraculous, there is no supernatural or whatever. But eventually, you begin to realize that all assumptions somewhere down the line, end up actually just faith assumptions. So, I would encourage you to let the resurrection of Jesus begin to undermine some of your secular assumptions and draw you toward Jesus himself as the only valid way forward. The other person in the room is the committed Christian who feels that they can't really talk about their commitment to Jesus without inevitably sounding like a loon to their friends and their neighbors, right? How many of you are like that person today? You're like, oh, I, yeah, I don't want to talk about it because I think they'll think I'm crazy, right? I want to encourage you again, friend, uh, that you have not stepped outside of reason. What you've done is you've stepped beyond reason, but you haven't stepped outside of it. Uh, and so what I would like to encourage you with is uh, that you have every reason to actually put your confidence in the Christ story because... The only thing that makes sense of the Christ story is if it happened. It makes far less sense that it ever got 2,000 years down the line through persecution and through adversity uh, if it didn't happen. So what I want to encourage you with is that you can resist being obnoxious but still be confident about the faith you've committed to. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if the resurrection didn't happen, you are to be pitied above all people. Okay? And so, uh, but he says it happened. And we're staking our lives on the evidence of the eyewitnesses who staked their lives on that claim. So in the midst of this reality that Jesus is real, what I want to do, though, is call us back to the way in which it's real. That, that there is a relational posture to the, this resurrection account. This isn't just about having the right worldview per se, though it involves a transformation of our outlook on reality. The resurrection involves an invitation to fellowship. See, he doesn't just come and debate the disciples. He comes and he dines with the disciples. Don't miss that. Certainly, when you 
have people who think you're a ghost and you, you know, like eat food in front of them, that certainly helps them think that you're real, right? Uh, you know, it's like, I mean, it's Christmas morning and the cookies and milk are gone, right? It's like, oh, except nobody saw Santa eat or drink the milk, right? So like, anyway, this, they actually saw him eat the fish. And so this, on one hand, helps validate their experiences. Wow, he's real. On another hand, it functions symbolically to say, I'm here. And I, I, I want to have fellowship with you because we're dining. We're at the table together. This is a symbolic gesture of relationship. And what does he do in the midst of dining with them? He says, look at my wounds. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You see, what he's saying is, look at the scars from what I have suffered on your behalf. That he comes and he says, not only am I real, but I have redeemed you. And so you can have relationship with me. That my wounds have brought about your reconciliation. That there was, that there was a relational problem that you brought to the table and it was sin. And I'm inviting you to, to the table because of what I have redeemed through my wounds. And so there is a relational invitation in the midst of his reality. That's the first thing. The second thing is that we see that Jesus is not only real, he's also central. Listen to what he says as he moves on. He says in verse 44, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Now, Jesus goes from persuading to teaching. Like once the disciples see it's really him, Jesus is real, he begins to open their minds to understand the scriptures, right? Like, shalom, got any food? Open your Bibles. First Christian small group ever, okay? Uh, this is like my house every Sunday night, right? Uh, and so with our community group. Uh, he teaches them. He immediately begins teaching them. Remember, their identity is Disciple and a disciple is fundamentally a learner. Okay, the Christian life is a life of learning, and he begins teaching. I remember when I first really seriously started following Jesus. Like uh, he, I think there, he became a reality to me as a pretty young kid. But certainly as a teenager, the notion of his grace hit me like a freight train. Right, like I really began to understand Jesus in a very serious way, that he was very real, and um, began this relationship with Jesus in a very serious way. And so I had this mentor in my life, and I came to him and I was like, what do I do? Like, okay, like I get it, I grasp it, I received Christ, but what do I do like with that? And, and he had some great advice. He said, start just reading the Bible. Profoundly simple, isn't it? Like, so just start reading the Bible. Well, this was pretty good advice, right? He just said, just come back, read a chapter and come back and we'll talk about it. Well, I didn't hear him say chapter. I heard him say a whole book. I just thought, just read as much as you can and come back and talk about as much as you can. And this is why my sermons aren't 30 minutes, right? And so, uh, and so we, we, we got back together and he was like, oh, you read a whole book? And I was like, well, yeah. I mean, like, it's hard to just stop in one spot. I mean, there's so much going on here. He's like, oh, wow, this is great. This is going to be easier than I thought. And so, right, this kid actually wants to read the Bible. 
And so that was what we did. We just began this rhythm of reading scripture and talking about it. And that, that really rooted my life as a Christian in the scriptures. That, that, the, the, for me, my life rhythm of walking with Jesus was a rhythm of studying and reading the Bible. It was good advice and it put me on track as a learner. But why? Why is it all that necessary to follow Jesus, uh, to actually read the Bible? Well, notice that as soon as Jesus is with them, as soon as he shows them his reality, invites them into relationship by showing his wounds, what does he do? He teaches, he opens their minds to the scriptures. He uses the scriptures to help interpret their experience. Yes, you have this experience of profound grace and awe and wonder. And the only thing that can interpret it for you is the scriptures that testify to me. That's what he's saying. Look what Jesus says. He says, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. And then he says in the law, the prophets and the Psalms. Now, this is uh, the breakdown of the Hebrew Bible, also known as the Tanakh. OK, the Torah, the law, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, the Nebim or the prophets. That's Joshua through Kings and then Isaiah through the 12 minor prophets. And then the Psalms, the first book of the Kethubim or the writings. And this was the first century Jewish Bible, the Tanakh. And it was read in these uh, sections. It's a different order than your English Bible, yet it's the same books. And Jesus is saying this, the entire Old Testament is about me. It's about me. Its purpose, its aim is fulfilled in my death and resurrection and preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins to the nations. In other words, the whole Bible is about Jesus. So how do you follow Jesus by ignoring the one thing that points to Jesus? Jesus says, read your Bibles because it's about me. If you want to know me, read your Bibles. The whole thing's pointing to me. The whole thing's illustrating what I've come to do. The whole thing is extrapolating what is results from what I've done. And so it was important for me to start reading the Bible when Jesus became real to me in a life-changing way because it was the way in which God says, you can get to know me. You can get to know me through reading my word. Um, I think this is, I think honestly... Uh, when we don't think about the Bible relationally, when we don't think about the Bible really as all about Jesus and what he's done, and if we don't read the Bible with the lens of the good news, the gospel, then we will, we will have a really hard time wanting to build a habit of reading scripture. We'll have a hard time falling in love with the Bible because it will look a lot like a list of moral do's and don'ts. It will look a lot like a manual from Ikea. Here are instructions for how to put your life together, right? And then you'll be like, this guy. Who's like confounded. I, now, the, I threw this on a slide last night when I was really, really tired. But today, I, I thought there's some interesting implications just to this picture, right? You have this guy looking at a manual and he is confounded. He's like, well, I don't know what to do. Everything's in Swedish, right? And then you have the guy on the phone, right? He's like made a relational connection to the source and he's happy, right? So this kind of works for Bible study methods, right? Like we can look at it as a manual of do's and don'ts and we'll be confounded. Or we can connect to the source. We can have a relationship with the one to whom it is all about and it will bring joy. So I didn't mean to do that, but it's a nice accidental visual. So there you go. Jesus' own approach to the Bible works this way. He says, it is about me. It is an epic narrative about the good news. It's what Paul says is able to make us wise for salvation. See, 
If you read the Bible disconnected from the heart of the Bible, which is Jesus, the Messiah, it will crush you. It will just be a list. It will make you miserable and you can chuck it. But if you read it with a relational lens that it is pointing out the grace of God revealed in Jesus, then you will find it to be life-giving. I don't know what kind of habit or rhythm you have built in your life so far in relationship to the Bible, uh, but... Uh, we're going to be working on that some this summer as a church. We've got a great reading plan we're developing for reading through uh, the Psalms this summer. But uh, there are three habits I just want to point out this morning, three really helpful habits to engaging Scripture. Uh, and so, uh, especially in a relational way. Habit one is this simply read it slow every day. Read it slow daily. By reading it slow, what I mean is pick a little bit. Just sit with it. Meditate on it. Um, Study it. Uh, Don't feel like you just have to read through a whole bunch of it. Just focus on a little bit and ask the Spirit, what do you want to say to me today through this text? What do you want to say about who you are, about who I am, about what you're calling me to trust in you for? Habit two, read it fast yearly. So you read it slow daily and read it fast yearly. That means make sure you get the whole sweep of the entire narrative, Genesis through Revelation. Make a habit of reading big chunks too. So make a daily habit of some small chunks. Make a yearly habit of the big thing. So that way you're, you're re-baptizing your imagination in the grand narrative of creation and fall and redemption and new creation that calls you as a storied disciple to perform your part in his mission of what he's doing to redeem all things. And then habit three, read it together. Read it slow daily, read it fast yearly, and read it together always. It's so important to read in community. We just did this on Friday as we wrapped up Luke. We read the entire book in one sitting, three hour, bang. It was awesome. We just read together. We heard each other read and proclaim God's word out loud to each other. And we didn't talk about it. We just let it, we just absorbed it. And it was awesome. And you can do this too. You can read together and you can talk about it. And you can say, am I crazy? What does this say? And you guys can help each other out. Uh, Let me just throw out two quick resources on this. If you want to get better at reading slow, let me suggest the website PrayAsYouGo.org. It's awesome. There's British people that just read the Bible to you and ask questions. I mean, we can't all have our own private British person to read the Bible to us, can we, Ted? Right? So we have to, we have to, we have to download it. And so it's pretty cool. And, uh, and it's just a great way to meditate on scripture. Uh, for reading fast yearly, uh, for getting a whole sweep of the whole Bible and the main literary strategy of each book of the Bible, I would suggest BibleProject.com. It is phenomenal. These guys have crushed it. There's these animated videos and they narrate it. It's, it's super well done. It's totally free. Check it out. BibleProject.com and PrayAsYouGo.org. These are great resources. So, Jesus is central, he's real, but that's not all. He's also a sender. Uh, This is the third point of Luke's conclusion. Jesus is the sender. He sends God's spirit and he sends God's spirit-empowered community. Check out what he says to his disciples in verse 48. It says, you are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. 
and went, and then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually in the temple praising God. You gotta love this ending. Jesus vanishes like poof. What is up with that? That's super cool. Anyways, he he just disappears up into the air. Uh, There is something about Jesus' resurrected body. I've I've tried to make sense of this over the years. Um, Here's here's what I I think is going on. And and then uh, I think this is really cool. Jesus and his resurrected body can like appear in a room and disappear from a table and then like ascend into the skies and disappear from sight. What in the world? I, I think... This is the only thing that makes sense to me. He's perfectly at home in his resurrected body, on one hand in the dimension of earth, and on the other hand, perfectly at home in the dimension of heaven. That heaven and earth were always meant to be together. That heaven and earth were meant to be married together at creation. And sin drove heaven and earth apart, right? And the end of time, Revelation 21, 22 says, heaven will descend. Heaven and earth will be remarried for all Time In between then, the resurrected Christ who is at home, earth and in heaven, is able to like switch our sphere and God's sphere interchangeably without any issue. Now, we uh, anticipate the marriage of heaven and earth, and we too will have bodies like his, glorified, spiritual, and imperishable. imperishable. Also physical. Um, if you have more questions about resurrection bodies, go read 1 Corinthians 15. It's going to take you a few times. Read it a couple times. All right. The book ends the same way it began. It began with a Zechariah the priest in the temple praising God for what he promised to do. Now it ends with the disciples at the temple praising God for what he has done. And they are rejoicing because of what God has done. And joy, by the way, is always the result of confidence in God's finished work. And now the disciples have come to grasp Jesus' reality and centrality, that it was all God's plan from the beginning for Jesus to suffer and be raised on the third day, and now they are free to step into his mission. And so Jesus is not only real and not only central, but he is also the sender. In Matthew's version of the end of his gospel, in Matthew 28, it's called the Great Commission, where Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And I'm with you always to the end of the age. And here in Luke, it dovetails neatly with Acts 1, where we see a mission, a message, a scope, and a means. Let me break this down for you quickly. There's a mission. Jesus says, you are my witnesses. You are to bear witness to these things. What things? His death, his resurrection, and the message of forgiveness to all nations. We are witnesses to in a qualified way. Not in the same way that we were. they were. They were actual eyewitnesses to the resurrection. But you, my friend, if you know Jesus, can bear witness to what he's done in your life. You can bear witness to your experience of forgiveness and grace. You can bear witness to his transforming love in your life. Here's the point today. There is a mission that Jesus invites all disciples to embrace. And that mission is to join him and to bear witness to what he's done. I need you to know today that you are not gathered as a church merely to be fed, but to go feed that you are gathered as a church to be sent as a church, that you have a mission, that God has called you into a mission where he's planted you, that you have been sent into your family, your school, your workplace, your neighborhood to bear witness 
to His grace and transforming work in your life. That He has called you and sent you there to bear witness to what He's done. And that is good. You see, He's sent you to bear witness to your deep satisfaction that the entire world longs for. The longing for His satisfying love. And you can bear witness to it. And there's a message too, not just a mission. You are sent and you are sent with a message. And that is a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Two things. Repent comes from the Old Testament word for turn. It is just literally like turn, right? It's a turn from allegiances that are messed up. It's a turn from idolatry, worshiping things that aren't God. It is a turn from a way of life toward a new way of life, to a new God, to the God, and to align ourselves with Him. And it is also a turning for forgiveness, which means this, that this is a message that is about a relationship gone wrong, but made right through Jesus. Where at the core, we need to be forgiven for the ways we have driven our lives off the course they were designed for. And God says there is forgiveness, and there is hope, and there is redemption. And by the way, if you're going to be a good messenger of repentance and forgiveness, we all darn well better be practicers of forgiveness and repentance. Amen? It's not very convincing to be told a message of forgiveness by someone who's bitter at you. I, I had to do some adjustment and repentance this week in some places where I had to come back again and say, I need to walk in forgiveness toward this person. Otherwise, like my testimony in their life is going to be deeply unconvincing. And for the glory of God, we all need to be constantly turning, constantly forgiving. And this is why Jesus says, pray like this. Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. Amen? And so the church is sent on mission with a message. And the scope is all nations. That just means anyone That means everyone and everywhere. And there are probably some folks in your life that are easy to write off. They're hard for you and they're uncomfortable for you. The mission of God, the message of God calls you into relationship there to bear witness. Across barriers, across comfort, because friends, the mission isn't comfortable. But finally, there is a means. There is a way in which the, me- the, the mission is carried out. He says, wait for the promise of the Father to be clothed with power. See, the means of carrying out the mission of God in the world is twofold. Jesus has to leave you and Jesus has to clothe you. He has to leave you. He has to ascend. He has to go be with the Father because guess what? When he's here in our sphere, he's in one place. But when he is in heaven's sphere, when he is reigning from the throne, when he is at the right hand of the Father, he is omnipresent. Right? And so he can coordinate the mission of the church. He can reign as ruler and king of the universe from heaven. And so he's got to leave. He's got to do that as we declare him Lord So he can stand as our high priest, our intercessor, and our king over the world. But he also has to clothe you. He's got to clothe you with the promise from the Father. This is the Spirit of God sent to empower and indwell all who trust in Jesus. And this is played out in the story of Acts. It really shouldn't be called the Acts of the Apostles. It should be called the Acts of the Spirit. Because it is a Spirit-empowered community that goes to the nations proclaiming Jesus is King. Guess what? 
when you are stepping out into Jesus's mission to bear witness to what he's doing in you, that is impossible apart from the transforming work of the spirit. The Bible makes this very, very clear that apart from his spirit, we, we've got nothing. We've got nothing. And so he transforms us from the inside. And, and, and if you are stepping into Jesus' mission to love people in his name, to share your experience of him, loving those who've been wounded by the world, it will cause great need for help in you. Trust me. If, there, if you don't need any help, if you don't need any divine intervention, guess what? You are not living Jesus' mission. You are living your own mission, right? The, self, the mission of self-sufficiency. Tell me how it goes when you get to the end of it. The mission of Jesus is a mission of God dependency. It is a mission where we are constantly fueled and empowered by his spirit. That's his good promise. He says, I'm going to send my helper, the helper, and he's going to help you. And he's going to give you a new heart with new desires. See, we don't just live this religion, this philosophy. The Christian life is empowered by the spirit. It's not just a set of ideals we attempt to attain. It's not a set of morals we attempt to live out. It is a relationship and a power from within where we are given God's heart, God's desires, and we are able to live out his ways from the heart, from the inside as he transforms our loves. See, we don't just obey because we're afraid of punishment or we want reward. We obey Christ because it's our deepest longing, because he's given us a new desire from the inside. And so we need God's power to live out his mission. And so that's where we end today. We end Luke looking forward to our next series. We're calling it The Art of Neighboring. If we have the art, let's throw that up. Uh, the Art of Neighboring is really about looking at the place God has planted you and recognizing how you are sent. And what does it look like to learn who your neighbors are, to listen to them, to long with them for the arrival of God's kingdom, and to behave towards them in ways that reveal who God is in your life. And so we are excited about that series. We're going to live into this commission that Jesus sends his disciples with as we look at what it means right in our very neighborhoods to neighbor well. And in Jesus' terms, that means love people like you want to be loved. And so Jesus doesn't call the church to exist for itself, but for the world. The church exists in the world for the world. We do not exist for ourselves. But thank goodness he has sent his spirit to help us on that journey. And so now I want to invite us to the table this morning to worship Christ and say to ourselves, our souls, I am nourished and I am satisfied by what you have done, Jesus, on the cross for me. And as we take that meal, recognize we are at a table that is open to all. And we are at a table that nourishes us and reminds us that we are to be sent to the world to nourish the world with good news and that we do not exist to ourselves. So let's take the bread and the cup declaring Christ's death is for us and for the world, and that we are his partners in that work of grace. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercy and love. We thank you for Luke, and we pray that it would seep into the fabric of our being such that we would respond as spirit-empowered people, good newsing every place you've sent us in your power for your name's sake. Amen.